We humans like to remember things on a grand scale. We build museums and libraries. We fill pages with our history. We dig for bones and buried pasts, and we build monuments to memory. Here in New York, where I live, there's a memorial of such power and strength, it's almost sacred. At ground zero, the 9-11 memorial spans eight acres and is named poetically, reflecting absence. It's a grand gesture to not forget a terrible event in our history. Why? What is the purpose and the particular design that makes it, in its short time in existence, one of the most iconic pieces of architecture in the world? Why do we want to remember? Well, who better to ask than its architect? What is a space that we create? How does it affect others who walk through it? As an architect, that's our responsibility, to try and make people's lives better in physical, but also emotional and metaphysical ways. And so I think the memorial needs to act as a truth teller. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Michael Arad was 32 years old when he witnessed the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11 and responded in the way he knew best, with architecture. His inspired design, two voids occupying the very footprint of the buildings that were felled in a horrific act of terrorism. It is one of the most striking experiences of a space I know, and it made me want to talk with Michael about architecture and consciousness. I can't even say how significant this memorial is because it evokes so many emotions including mine, when 9-11 happened. Just so happens I was there this morning and I uh, was just overwhelmed with emotion uh, of all kinds, you know, just looking at what you've done, Michael. It's extraordinary. Thank you. So I, I would like to know a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? And, you know, I think you're Israeli. Your name sounds suggests that. It is. Um my father was an Israeli diplomat, uh, and so I grew up in a lot of different places. I had a very uh, peripatetic childhood. I was born in London. I was there till the ripe age of three, then a year in New York, then three in Washington, D.C., then four in Jerusalem, another one in New York, another two in Jerusalem, and then four in Mexico City. So that got wow. me through high school. What's your favorite city in the world? Well, Jerusalem is home in so many other ways. My mother's family has been there for five, six generations now. and uh, But it's a city that's changed so much in my lifetime. Um, Even the old 
quarter, even the, the old quarter. But you know, speaking as as an Israeli who grew up in Jerusalem in the seventies, um, it was a sleepy sort of government and university town back then. And you know, the most exciting thing would be to go to some tea house and have a conversation. Uh, the city has become much more impoverished and intolerant in many ways. But Jerusalem is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And so I feel this deep emotional connection to the city. Years ago, I uh, house sat for friends in the old city in Jerusalem. And uh, I couldn't sleep. I was walking around late at night under the moonlight of the old streets of Jerusalem. And it was as if you went back in time 2,000 years. All the traces of modernity disappeared and you were walking down these stone alleyways by structures that have been there for millennia. And... Uh, ended up walking by the entrance to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the door was open at 2 in the morning. I was surprised. And I walked in, and there was a, a ceremony going on. The church itself is shared by many different Christian sects, and the Greek Orthodox were, there was some ceremony going on. You could see the nuns and the priests in their garb, burning incense, um, the the lamplight from the you know the oil uh, lamps and it was as if you were just in a whole other time and place all of a sudden and so that's always there in Jerusalem and all the other frustrations of the current political situation in Israel they're sort of on top but it's a very deep well so I've been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre but I've also last time. I was there, um, somebody took me through the tunnels and the crypts, and we walked through the not only the ancient city, but what was underneath that ancient city, finally to a crypt where, rumor has it, um, is buried uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not that's true was not even relevant. The experience itself took me to another yeah. dimension of space and time and uh, brought out a lot from me, um, whatever you might call it, archetypal imagination, memory, something. Yeah. Those archaeological digs near the old city are remarkable. Um, yeah, this is where David was and this is where Christ I walked. Mean, was, yeah, Christ walked and the whole Bible comes alive. Yeah, I was working a couple of years ago on a project near the Western Wall, actually. It was um, a proposal to build an egalitarian prayer plaza adjacent to the Western Wall, which we all are familiar of with it, sort of this iconic stone wall with this large stone I plaza. I put in my front. prayers there too. But right now, women are not allowed to worship at that wall. Uh, men and women aren't allowed to worship together. And so a group called Women of the Wall, as well as a reform and conservative movement, petitioned for the creation of a space that would be separate but equal for groups to meet and pray at the extension of the same wall. The wall is much larger than what you see. It continues north and south. Um, and the area that was relegated to us to develop was in the archaeological park at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And they've excavated about 60 feet down there to the level of the Herodian Street. Wow. So if you think that's where the storefronts were, that, that's <laughs> where the money changes were that are cited in that's the... That's right, in the Bible. Yeah. And you can see in the middle of that street these enormous rocks that were toppled over by the Romans when they conquered Jerusalem. 
And so you have the traces of this violence that has been there and lying there for thousands of years. And when you walk by a boulder, the, you know, not, it's not really a boulder. It was a cut stone that was part of a wall that was part of the temple. You are connected to the, that past. Yeah, and that space has been the witness of some extraordinary history. Yes, and you can touch it and yeah. be connected to it. So space can be healing, space can be suffocating, space can be destructive, space can create anxiety, space can cause us to self-reflect, space can energize us. How do you think of space? Uh, well, almost as if, as an architect, it's a responsibility. What is the space that we create? How does it affect others who walk through it? I mean, the most obvious and easy example in New York is the difference between Grand Central and Penn Station. I mean, those are two large spaces that channel hundreds of thousands of people a day. And one does it in a way that elevates the spirit. And one just humiliates the people that walk through it on a daily basis. And that life, that day-to-day -day life for hundreds of thousands of people over months and years and decades is not going to change because anytime soon because the decisions that we made as builders, as designers, as architects um, are cast in place and they will be for a very long time and they're going to affect the life of so many people. And, and you walk through a space that elevates the spirit and you walk out and you meet somebody else and you're in a whole other place emotionally. Architecture critic Vincent Scully talked about, you know, you enter New York through Grand Central, like, uh, you know, on the wings of an angel, or you scurry like a rat through the tunnels at Penn Station. But what does that mean after you've walked through that space for the rest of that day? All the interactions that you're going to Your moods, have. your feelings, your emotions, yeah. It tells you that you are not worthy and you're not important, mm -hmm. and it deadens the spirit to go through a space that is designed to demean you. Or you can create a space that elevates the spirit. So I think as an architect, that's our responsibility to try and make people's lives better in physical, but also emotional and metaphysical ways. That's beautifully said. You reminded me of uh, something that uh, I was thinking of as you were saying, you know, as you traveled in London through the tubes, as they call them, you yeah. see the sign, mind the gap. Right? Yeah. Mind the space. I think we all need to mind the space. That's where yeah. creation, maintenance, destruction is happening right now. One of my favorite lines from uh, Cohen's song um, is, there's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. Which brings me to a very interesting question. Space has a lot to tell us. You know, it doesn't matter where you are and, you know, you kind of give it a shape, something that has neither shape nor seems to be in time, uh, something that seems to have no edges to it. Um, how did you get interested, first of all, in architecture and your fascination with space? I think to some degree, the experience of growing up in so many different cities opened my eyes to seeing urban life and architecture 
in so many different ways. I think cities in some way are sort of the culmination of human endeavor. Uh, it's something that we can that only comes out of this sort of collective enterprise over time. And each city is unique in its history and its placement and the lives of the people that are in it and the culture that they create. But there's also something universal about our life as you know, a single individual walking down a street and then being immersed in the life of a city. And I think that experience guided me in thinking about what to do, for example, here in New York is um, at Ground Zero. How do you bring people onto the site and what are the experiences that they will have? I was also reading about where you were uh, when 9-11 happened, when the planes went into the Twin Towers. So what were you doing? We were living in the East Village at the time, and my wife uh, was working for a, a law firm in Lower Manhattan at the very end of Broad Street. Uh, and she had to be work early that morning. I was still at home when I heard on the radio... This just into our newsroom, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And I thought it must have been some sort of accident, you know. I mean, I looked, I remember hearing that while I was in the bathroom at one end of the apartment. I went across the apartment, looked out the window, across First Avenue, and looking downtown, I could see smoke coming up from one of the towers. And I grabbed my camera and I walked up to the roof of our apartment building, a four-story tenement building um, on First Ave. And... Uh, the second plane as it came down the Hudson River and turned around and crashed into the second tower. You actually saw that happening? Yes. That's a moment that will never be erased from my mind. And one of the things I remember from that moment, too, was there were probably a dozen or so construction workers on, standing on the steel of a tower that was going up across from us. And uh, they and I could see what happened. And the people on the street, on the sidewalk, could not. I mean, it was a matter of where you were. We had a clear sight line. And there was a sort of collective gasp as it happened. And I almost envied the people on the sidewalk for their ignorance, for not knowing yet what had happened. When you are confronted with mortality in that dramatic way, immediately you also not only feel empathy and compassion and the you're aroused to do something out of love, empathy, compassion. But also you start to think about yourself. Uh, it's inevitable, you know, that you know, in the scale of cosmic space-time, our life is not even the blink of an eye. And we go about with all these mundane concerns, <laughs> all these issues. That are not really issues. That aren't yeah. issues at all. And we can never forget that all of those who we lost on September 11th were heroes. My own experiences 
and the immediate aftermath of the attack that I witnessed were inscribed by the physical environment in which I was in, whether it was a street corner or a a large open public space like Union Square or Washington Square, and the way that people came together at these street corners. New York is rebuilt, and New York will be stronger in the way we get through this. So it was a combination of the physicality of the city, but also, you know, the just the really simple physical things which make up a street, the asphalt, the concrete, the walls of buildings, but also how people came together in these streets and what what it meant to be a New Yorker in the days that followed the attack and how we supported one another, literally because we could stand next to one another. Flowers, teddy bears, and American flags surround hundreds of missing persons flyers. Signs like Arabs are not the enemy symbolize the peaceful tone. And I felt that support. It changed how I saw and understood the violence that I had witnessed. Because I could stand next to a complete stranger at two in the morning around next to the fountain at Washington Square Park. And I came to that place in that moment full of despair. And somehow it was a, a moment that changed my understanding because me standing next to them was in a sense saying, I will do the same for you. I will support you. And and I think that's why New York got through what happened here with a tremendous amount of both stoicism and compassion. The city provided us with this armature for our interactions. And when I thought about what we could do at Ground Zero, the competition guidelines actually suggested that the, almost the entirety of the eight-acre site, which would be dedicated to the memorial, should be submerged some 60 feet below street level, like a big crater, a hole in the middle of the city. Uh, and it would entirely separate that site from the day-to-day life of New York. And I thought that that was absolutely the wrong direction, that we had to bring everything up to grade, that we had to stitch the site back into the day-to-day life of the city, that it had to be this sort of continuous urban realm, that there is no sort of hard edge where you leave New York and you enter the memorial. But it's there is a sense of change as you walk across the plaza underneath the trees and you approach the edge of the voids. But it's firmly within the urban fabric of New York. It's part of New York. As I was saying, uh, I was there this morning and I knew I was going to be speaking to you. It's exactly what you say. You know, you have all this noise in the background. As you approach the memorial, the noise actually starts to diminish. And when you're there, there is this feeling of presence and it evokes all kinds of emotions. And there is a certain stillness even in the midst of all the busyness that's happening there. So I think in distinction to that, are the voids, the two empty spaces at the center of the plaza. And I started to think about what a memorial might be long before there was a competition for a memorial at that particular site. And I could not imagine when I started drawing, actually rebuilding on that site. It was too soon. It was a wound that was still separating. And So I looked west to the Hudson River, which is a block away, and I imagined 
a memorial actually in the Hudson River. And uh, the memorial I'd imagine was taking somehow, <laughs> and I don't think it's possible, but it was a sort of image in my mind, the surface of the water and shearing it open to form two square voids and imagining the river flowing into these voids but never filling them, this sort of sense of ongoing absence that time could not erase that emptiness and all the water that flowed into that void could not fill it. And uh, so when the competition was held for the design of the memorial at the World Trade Center site, I tried to bring that idea from the Hudson River to the plaza and to bring those two ideas together, the idea of creating something that is a normative public space that is similar in some ways to Washington Square, to Union Square, to open plazas across cities all over the world, but to bring those empty voids into that space. And you can imagine people who live and work in this neighborhood crossing the site almost daily on their way to the mundane tasks of our everyday life but it's also a pilgrimage site for people from all over the world who come here to to bear witness in some way to what happened here. And that's what I wanted the memorial to do, to bear witness, to not embellish, to not tell a story that is untrue, but to simply and directly connect with visitors by inscribing the size of the footprints and surrounding those footprints with the names of the people who died. So I think in the memorial, that void at the center of each pool, to me, is, is an acknowledgement of that. It's this empty space that will forever remain empty. And as we designed it, we tried to make sure that as you stood there at the edge of the pool, you would never be able to see at the bottom of that space. And it's so many people have asked me, but where does it go? Does it have a bottom? Of course it has a bottom, but we had to, you know, we had to still obey the laws of physics in building in New York. But the experience that we want people to have is one that it is um, almost, uh, there's something a little bit frightening about it. I remember the first time I took my daughter to see the memorial and she must, maybe she was eight at the time and she looked at it and that was the first place her eye went was that void at the center and she wanted to know what is there. And uh, you know, there's a certain, a certain unease that I think comes from that emptiness infinite possibilities is there in the void. The void is the immeasurable potential of all that was, all that is, and all that will be in the future. I can tell you my experiences. I felt the wound, but I also felt holy, and I felt healed at the same time. I'm glad to hear that. So I thank you for this gift to humanity. We'll return with Michael after this break. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Michael Arad, whose design for the 9-11 Memorial has created a unique space, one of sacred memory and emotion. Since it opened, millions of people have stood in front of the two striking voids inscribed with the names of those who died on 9-11. What do you think 
people get out of being in that place. It almost feels like, uh, as you said, a pilgrimage. But now here we are in this space. So I think different people get different things out of it. Um, any effort like this addresses different constituencies and there's a sort of like a series of concentric circles and at the very heart of it are the people who lost loved ones that day or and uh, and then the people that knew them as friends are people who are born after and far away and to them this is a historical event like d-day is to me you go to this memorial and suddenly it reminds you how banal how we live in this realm of mediocrity, which is all about me and mine. When you look at this memorial, it definitely evokes a feeling that we need to change in the way we live our lives. You know, just that's the value of these memorials. What I had hoped to do is create a place that fosters reflection and introspection, that allows for true quietness to sort of immerse yourself in, uh, that allows you to remove yourself from the day-to-day. That was my hope in this design, is to create a place that allows you to reflect on what you see in the moment that you're in, in the place and its meaning. Allows you to remember too, right? Mm -hmm. I think somewhere I read that uh, healing is uh, a remembrance. Remember that which was dismembered. So when you are in a place like that and it evokes this mood for self-reflection, you do feel uh, a sense of holiness and healing and uh, a sense of the sacred. And uh, somehow, I don't know how, it opens the window to intuition and creativity and uh, even a calling. Yes, I, I always thought of that moment of encounter with the names when you walk up to the edge of the void and you see this enormous space that you can only stand at the threshold of the space and you can see the hundreds of names that surround each pool. And it, to me, it's meant to evoke a secular but spiritual moment, an experience that is equivalent to religious experiences that people have. I realized that you couldn't have planned this, right? You happened to be at that spot. You saw what was happening, changed your life. And now what you did is influencing, I presume, millions of people who walk through that space. So I've always been a believer in what I call synchronicity. There's something happening that brings together this confluence of events that shape our destiny. How do you see it as shaping your destiny? Destiny feels like such a big, heavy word. <laughs> yes. And uh, it is kind of what it is on some level, right? I mean, we only know the moment that we're in and we can imagine others, but and how much do we even really know the moment that we're in? My role within this, within how events have unfolded. This process, I mean, you won a competition to do this, right? Mm -hmm. What was that, that process? First of all, when did it occur to you that you wanted to be part of this memorial? In many ways, the entry that I sent in was a 
polemical exercise. It's like writing a letter to the editor. Like I think the U.S. foreign policy is deeply misguided, uh, and not expecting the president to call you the next day and say, "Well, we're going to make you Secretary of State." You know, <laughs> um, and. I sent in a proposal that broke all the rules that were within the guidelines for the competition. And there was one footnote on 30 pages of instructions that said, these are the rules, but uh, the jury reserves the right to consider other options if they deem them to be consistent with their objectives, which were not spelled out. And what was the jury? Who were these people? The jury was uh, a group, a dozen uh, different people from different backgrounds, um, you know, Maya Lin, the architect of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, was on that jury. James Young, the Holocaust scholar, was on that jury. Patty Harris, the deputy mayor under Michael Bloomberg. I don't want to list each and every one of them right now, but... Uh, How many people were basically in the competition? So they received uh, over 5,000 entries. It was the largest architectural competition. And did they keep you informed along the way? Who's No, in, not who's really. Out, so, uh, who's the, the finalist? Uh, the deadline was June 30th, and back then you you had to actually print out a 30 by 40 inch board and send it in by courier, and they received all of these entries, and they put them on easels and walked by them and winnowed it down from thousands to about eight finalists. And after that, I met with a jury and with members of the LMDC, Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, two or three times to explain the further development of the design. We were given time to generate additional drawings and models. And it became clear through the press that they had narrowed it down to three, but it seemed like they were not, they were going to go with a different scheme. I was surprised when I found out. In fact, I was sitting in my car. I think it was January 6th, early in the morning. It was very cold. January 6th, which year? 2004. And uh, the living in the East Village, we have this peculiar institution called the Alternate Side Parking. So <laughs> I had to move my car, and the battery had died, and I was waiting for a tow truck to come by and jump my car. And I'd already heard on the radio that a design had been picked, and nobody had contacted me, so I figured that must have been one of the other designs. So sort of, okay, I gave it my best, I tried, I know that, and it didn't work out, but it was still a good effort. And then I went downstairs and I couldn't start the car, so <laughs> a little frustrating. Uh, and then I got a call asking me to come in to sign some documents, and I thought it was probably basically promising to, you know, not hold them harmless or whatever as they moved forward. I didn't think it was that they had picked my design, and I said, I'm very busy, I don't think I'll be able to come in today. And I could hear a note of panic in their voice, like, it's very important that you come in today. So hope springs eternal. I started to think, well, maybe, maybe it is a good sign. And when you found out, what was your feeling inside? How did you feel? It was a rush of different feelings. I think one point, I mean, there's a sense of pride and accomplishment. You know, you're a young architect, there, you have no affirmation of your success as an architect. How old were you then? I was probably 35, 36, wow. yeah. Uh, which is nothing in terms of architecture. And then the sort of the weight of it starts to hit you and then all the things which need to be done. The responsibility. Start, yes, the weight of the responsibility, but also shortly thereafter it's like well we need to do a, you know the the to-do list that springs out of a moment like this becomes so long and so you just put yourself into that and worry about what you can do how long was the process from start to finish 
the design was announced January of 2004. And um, it went through sort of ups and downs until we opened the memorial on September 11 of 2011 on the 10-year anniversary. Those 10 years, yeah. did this occupy your life? Totally, yes. Yeah. Fortunately, my son was born in August of 2003, so I had oh. that additional focus of energy in my life that was a lifesaver. Because if all I did was think about that and all the various setbacks and difficulties and fights and compromises that were necessary to go through a process like this and to maintain the integrity of the design, it would have eaten me alive. And I think having a young child and then another... But this was also like a child, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the changes, for example, that occurred during this process, initially the design incorporated underground galleries. You could actually stand behind that waterfall. And I think the design is better for many of the changes that we made through the process. But I can say that with perspective and distance now. But when that decision came down in 2006, it was a very difficult moment. And it had been building up for months, and uh, but I kept resisting and fighting and so on. And I think I took my son to see his first movie, on a, at a movie theater on 2nd Avenue, we were watching uh, the animated movie Cars. It was out mm -hmm. in theaters, and my phone started to blow up with messages and missed calls and everything, and I knew exactly what this was. And I'm sitting there, and my son is having a great time watching yes. this movie, and I'm watching, you know, essentially what felt like a limb being cut off the memorial. And I thought, I have to just turn off the phone right now and focus on this. There's nothing I can do about that. I don't want to miss out on this. I return with Michael after this break to discuss architecture's role in shaping a better present and imagining a better future. We are supported by Viome, a new technology that not only analyzes your gut, but can also recommend the unique foods to avoid as well as to enjoy to keep your gut healthy. As I mentioned before, I've done this test myself and highly recommend it if you want to understand what's going on inside of your body. The information it can reveal about you might drastically change your approach to your health and everything you thought you knew about healthy food. It can reveal the key information you may be in search of in order to understand what works for you. For the first time, Biome is now available for only $199. Just a few months ago, it was $399. So please take advantage of what this test can offer you and your family. Go to Viome.com to order your gut intelligence test today. That's V-I-O-M-E dot com. Your diet is the most powerful tool you have to affect change in your health, and you now have it in your hands. We return with architect Michael Arad.
So let me ask you, as you were growing up and as you aspired to be an architect and your fascination with space, did you as a child have a favorite space or location or did you even internally go to some space to imagine or to envision? So I didn't always know that I wanted to be an architect growing up. I think, you know, I played with Legos. I'd build these imaginary cities out of toys and things. But I grew up with the expectation of my parents, perhaps more than my own expectation, that I would go to law school. But I didn't get into law school the first year I applied. Uh, you know, a lot of Jewish mothers in Israel want their kids <laughs> to be lawyers. And so I graduated uh, from college and I ended up being a ski bum for a year. And during that year, I um, reapplied to law school. But I decided also to put a portfolio together and uh, and I got into law school in Israel, but I also got into a number of architecture programs here in the U.S. And it was a real sort of fork in the road. My father was, thought I made a mistake the first few years after I made that decision. But I think they've come around uh, to see that this is the right thing for me. They must be thrilled with uh, what's happened. Yeah, I think so. They're very proud. One of my recollections, though, of an architectural space growing up when I was in Jerusalem in elementary school, um, we lived... The school that I attended was bet between my school and home was the military cemetery on Mount Herzl in Jerusalem. And sometimes mm -hmm. I would cut through there on my way home. And it was um, always a very quiet but verdant and beautiful place. And I just think something about that experience of walking through that space as a child um, must have imprinted itself on me in some way. There are so many things that have happened in the past that are horrific. The Holocaust, 9-11, wars. We remember, but we also want to heal. And many people say, there must be a moment when you let go so you can reimagine the future. But I personally feel that without resurrecting the past, it's not possible to reimagine the future. What do you think is the purpose? Why do we have memorials? Well, they're clearly for the living. And they're, I think, a way of interrogating the past. My father was a child during the Second World War in Romania. And um, it was not until two, three years ago that he started to tell my sister and I about his experiences during that war, about cousins of his that just disappeared. And nobody knew what happened to them. They were killed, obviously. Um, and he was racked with shame and guilt. He'd never talked about it for decades. And, Why would that know, be? It wasn't his fault. It makes no sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I think it is important to not let something sit there deep within you for decades and not interact with it, not query it, not ponder it, not share it. So I don't know if memorials can help bring that into our conversation. They're also testaments in some ways. They're a witness in this age where truth is so often denied and manipulated and to the point where we question whether it even exists. 
I think it is important that we affirm what happened and state it unequivocally. Our ability to deny the truth is <laughs> breathtaking at times. And so I think the memorial needs to act as a truth teller. Well, I liked what you said about being a testament. It is a testament and it's for the living. Let the dead bury the dead, but for the living, it's a reminder of what happened and what should never happen again. So it's definitely a testament. What do you see as the future as it pertains to you in your career and in architecture and with spaces? I hope to have the privilege of working on projects that enrich people's lives, that leave a mark on our cities that is positive and that future generations will be able to relate to it. I think um, in architecture, we have the opportunity to imagine a future that is better and then act in the present to build that future. Um, and it's one building at a time. At times, it's sometimes larger, more significant moves like the the 9-11 Memorial Plaza. But every act of building in some ways is an act of thinking about the future and how other people might come to, to use these spaces and buildings that we've created. What do you think people will experience in future generations as they walk past the memorial? They have no idea what happened and how people felt hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. Well, I think in designing the memorial, the names of the victims were, to me, the most important element in the design. And everything else around it basically served as the armature for that moment of encounter. But also, I think, being able to recognize yourself in these names. That's beautiful. And I think life will be different in many ways that we cannot expect, but I think the notion of identity and personhood will remain with us. They're something that I think is universal. And so to be able to walk up and see a name inscribed is to see a person. And I hope it's a moment of communion between a visitor and that name. Spaces affect us on a deep level. Their power is often invisible, yet omnipresent. Michael and all the people who worked on the 9-11 memorial etched an indelible memory into the story of New York, America, and the world. But he also helped me remember to be aware of all the spaces we pass through. From your home, to your commute, to your office, to the streets, roads, schools, and stores. Open yourself up to them. Notice how they make you feel and what emotions they evoke. They are all small memorials to the lives we lead and to our short time here, passing through them.
Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. Our story editor is Sam Dingman. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. We're most grateful to you for helping grow our community of listeners. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. <laughs>